Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. This is another episode in our Meet the Barrister series and I am Alana Hughes. In the Meet the Barrister series, I speak to a different guest barrister in each episode and discuss their path to the bar and their practice. The aim of this series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession as it is sometimes wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. Lockdown measures that are in place to combat the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic mean that this episode is being recorded remotely and there may therefore be a slight reduction in audio quality. We hope that you won't mind. My guest on this episode is Captain Sarah Gerrard, who is the Recruitment and Training Officer for the Army Legal Services. Sarah completed a degree in Criminology and Law, and then the GDL and BPTC. Between her call to the bar and her pupillage, she worked in a law firm in Pakistan, focusing on human rights. She then later worked as a police officer with the Metropolitan Police Force. After completing pupillage in 2015 and securing tenancy with Albion Chambers, Sarah juggled a busy common law practice in crime, personal injury and family law with her role in the Army Reserves at the weekends. After realising that enough time simply did not exist in the day for her to do both private practice and the Army Reserves alongside one another, Sarah took the leap of submitting an application to the Army Legal Services in a bid to be able to enjoy being a barrister and a soldier at the same time. Sarah has very kindly agreed to come on the podcast to talk about the blend of the bar and the army and some of her experiences so far in her career. Sarah, thank you for speaking with me and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lana. Thanks for having me. Can I just start off by asking you then, first of all, how it was you came to study law and criminology and then why you went on to become a barrister? Sure. So um, I've always been interested in all things to do with crime. And when I was younger, I thought if I did something like criminology and law, first it would satisfy my interests in learning about the criminal mind. Um, But also I thought it would give me a good grounding for potential future careers. Um, I didn't know whether I wanted to be part of the police force or go down the legal route and become a lawyer. And so I just thought that would leave my options open for me. And what was it then after you decided to become a barrister? Where did the inspiration come from to join the army? So I have a little bit of a military background. I've always been interested in being outdoors and having a really active lifestyle. And the thing that really appealed to me about the army was the fact that it would satisfy all of those interests, but also I'd be able to to be a lawyer at the same time. So I, I think I, for me, I just... I really liked the fact that I could practice law in a completely different environment from Civi Street, so sorry, from my civilian counterparts. I would be able to change postings every two years and I felt that being a barrister in the armed forces would allow me to really give something back and have a really meaningful and fulfilling career. 
And so you just mentioned change in postings. So is it that your current posting is in the recruitment and training department? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then did you were you in a different department before that or I was. So my career in the Army Legal Services has been fairly short. I've only been in since 2017. Since that time, I've I've done my initial training. So I started off in Army headquarters in Andover. Uh, I did that for a couple of weeks and then I went off to Sandhurst, which is where we do the professionally qualified officers course. Um, and that's for people like lawyers, dentists, vets, padres. And I did that for 12 weeks. I then returned to headquarters and completed my phase two training, which is effectively an introduction to the army and an introduction into where the army legal services fits within the army. I was exposed to all the different types of roles within the ALS and I was able to meet other officers within the ALS um, with the smallest branch uh, within the British Army. And so we're quite spread out across the UK. So it's not often that we get to see our other counterparts. Um, so that was that was really good in that sense. After that, we do something called a combat arm attachment, which is where we're attached to either an infantry unit or a armoured corps unit. And that's to give us an idea of what the rest of the army is like. The, the composition of the army legal services and the structure of it is slightly different from the rest of the army. So we don't sit within battalions or platoons or companies. We are just sort of hierarchical. So we have the general at the top and then flowing down from that, we have a number of officers in each of the ranks down to captain. So sorry, a sort of circuitous route, um, talking about combat arm attachments. Uh, we deploy overseas. Um, so I was lucky enough to join the second Royal Gurkha Rifles in Brunei. And I did that for three months. I didn't do any law out there. I was just exposed to life within an infantry battalion, which was phenomenal because one, I had a break from the law, which was quite nice. But at the same time, I was able to get an understanding of what it's like within the battalions. And that was really helpful because we will advise commanders from infantry and armoured corps units and many other different types of units within the British Army. So it's it's good to have an understanding of their structure and the areas in which they're based around the world. So, so after that, um, I then went into my first posting, which was in service complaints. And that's the part of the army that deals with any member of the armed forces. If they have any grievance, then we can take that complaint we first decide whether it's admissible and if it is we then advise on next steps so we assist commanders in dealing with a service complaint whether it be in their unit or in a different unit and we see that all the way through to appeals um, and then after appeals it goes on to the service complaints ombudsman I did that for a year and a half and after that time uh, I went on maternity leave for nine months and after that nine months, I then returned to the recruitment and training role. So that's my next posting, which I'm currently in. It's one thing I should say about the army that is phenomenal and quite different from life in Civvy Street is that as a self-employed barrister, if I wanted to take any maternity leave, obviously that would be a, a massive pay cut. 
there is no way that I could have funded nine months of maternity leave whilst I was in chambers. However, the army's maternity package is one of the best out there. So I was incredibly lucky to have a full nine months. Yep, I had just made a note of that to come back to that later on to discuss that when we were going to be talking about sort of comparing and contrasting the the different ways in which it's potentially better to be at the employed bar versus the private practice bar or or vice versa. So I suppose we'll, we'll just move to that now, then why not? Obviously, the maternity package and I assume sick leave and, and things like that, paid holidays are all absolutely fantastic and just non-existent in private practice. But what other ways does the employed bar differ from private practice, and particularly the employed bar within the army? And how have you found that it's been more beneficial for you to have a career at the employed bar as opposed to your previous one in chambers? Okay, so I suppose the main differences are the ones you've already highlighted. I've, in terms of the leave that you're entitled to, so whether it be holiday, maternity leave or sick leave, the other the other main difference for me is I found I've actually had a better work-life balance in the, in the army. I don't know if that's just the employed bar. I actually, other than the ALS, I don't have many... Uh, friends who are in fact any friends who are at the employed bar Um, so I have nothing to compare it to but for me I've found that you know when I I might finish the day at 5 or 6 p.m and I can genuinely clock off for the day it's incredibly rare that I do work over the weekends whereas when I was in chambers Maybe it was something to do with my work ethic when I was there, but I was always given last minute instructions. They just never seem to let up. And to me, that is the main difference between the employed bar and the self-employed bar. The way in which I found it more beneficial being at the employed bar is is just that I have a much better work-life balance and and it's enabled me to... I mean, it could end up sounding really dark, but I, you know, I, I really enjoy life so much more now. I thoroughly enjoyed my time at the Independent Bar. I loved Albion Chambers and I really thoroughly enjoyed working on the Western Circuit. But I just, I had so much coming my way, which was, you know, phenomenal. I can't say that was a bad thing because I was always kept in work, but I just never switched off. And now that I'm in the army, I do have that opportunity to have downtime. I should also say the other great thing about being in the army is I've been paid to do sport and AT. So I've played hockey for the Adjutant General's Corps, which the Army Legal Services falls within. I've also done cross country for Army Headquarters and for the Adjutant General's Corps. And I've been skiing. So yeah, I I probably could have made time for those things whilst at the Independent Bar. But I, at the time, didn't feel like I could balance all of those things at once. The best thing about it, Sounds, is that you've been able to, especially in the early days, whenever you were at the the private bar, but you were also in the reserves at the weekends, you were having to do both alongside each other. Whereas now you're in a position where those two sort of separate loves have been blended together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There was one weekend where when I was still in the reserves, I took some reading away with me and so it wasn't a field weekend so it wasn't particularly arduous 
But I can just remember when everybody else was getting their heads down, I was reading and preparing for what was coming my way on Monday. Whereas now, yes, I absolutely, you know, I get to my desk at 8 or 8.30 a.m. I start my work. I continue throughout the day. And sometimes, yeah, I have busy days, but they're never, they never feel insurmountable. I've, I've got a team around me who are so wonderful and supportive. It's a very collegiate atmosphere in the Army Legal Services. And it's nice to be able to, I suppose, have that as well. I did have a similar feeling in chambers. I could always, you know, go down the corridor and either ask my old pupil master for advice or in fact anybody else in chambers I'd happily go and ask for advice but I still very much felt like my cases were my own cases and it was all on me at the end of the day in the army legal services obviously it's still your name on that piece of advice that you give to a commander but it it just feels more collegiate which is lovely you just mentioned getting to your desk at 8, 8.30 in the morning. And I was just wondering if you would be able to, for people who perhaps aren't familiar at all with the sort of work that you do, be able to give a standard run through what might be, if it exists, a standard day for you. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll draw on my experience from service complaints because currently in the recruitment and training role, I'm not doing any legal work per se. So I would generally as I say, yeah, arrive at 8.30 and would probably receive several emails asking for advice on particular pieces of work, whether that be asking for admissibility advice. So looking at the details of a complaint and deciding whether it falls within the criteria set out in the regulations that we use. Or I could be drafting advice on an appeal. So if a complaint has gone all the way through and it's been unsuccessful at every stage and the complainant has decided to appeal the final decision, then I would give advice to, say, an appeal board member on whether or not the complainant would benefit from having an oral hearing or I might advise on the types of evidence that should be sought to, to further the appeal. So that that's a typical day, really. I should say at lunchtime, I'd probably get out for a run or go to the gym. Normal gym classes aren't running at the moment because of the pandemic. But usually I would, as I say, go on a run or go to a gym class. Uh, and then, yeah, just carry on writing advices, digging into case files and would leave around, say, between five and six which is quite good. I think because my, my career has been relatively short, I could also comment on colleagues who were in the same intake as me. They have advised commanders in the divisions, the main one being in Bulford and the second main one being up in York. And they will advise commanders on discipline cases. So whether it be a soldier who has consistently poor turnout or whether it's something like a soldier receiving a civilian conviction, then my colleagues will advise on things like that. We also, it might be easier for me to say that the Army Legal Services is made up of three pillars, the first being operational law, the second being advisory law, and the third being prosecutions. So within operational law, uh, we provide advice on the law of armed conflicts, uh, the rules of engagement and the use of force. 
under advisory law, it's all of the things I've just mentioned. So whether it be on disciplinary cases or the service complaints system or service inquiries. And then under prosecutions, um, we prosecute criminal cases in the court martial. Um, so that's a bit like being a solicitor or barrister working in a Crown Court on behalf of the Crown Prosecution Service. So we also advise the service police. We advise on charging decisions and then we prepare and run our own trials and appeals. And in terms of the other pillars, is that something that you can sort of chop and change within or once you're in advisory, is that you or would you intend maybe in the future to sort of move into operational or prosecutions to gain experience there? Um, Yes, I would intend to do that. So the idea is that when you first commission, we commission as captains and you usually won't promote to major until your sixth year. Postings last for two years each, usually. So uh, the idea is that you will do a posting under each of the pillars whilst you're a captain. And then that continues throughout as you rise up through the ranks. So yes, the idea is you get as diverse a career as possible and you fulfil each one of those roles at some point in your career, maybe multiple times in your career. And just in terms of the operational side of things, if you were to be based there, would you expect to be sent somewhere else in the world where conflict is actually ongoing? Or would you be working from England but sending that legal advice out? Um, it, it works both ways. So uh, we do have people who deploy on operational tours abroad. We also have the ability to reach back to the UK. So we can advise from the UK to those units who are deployed out in other countries. And obviously that work that you do is very, very different from anything that you would ever have been taught how to do in law school or on BPTC or during your pupillage. So how did you find the transition then in terms of, obviously there would have been a lot of transferable skills that you need, but the specific skills that you require to be an army legal services lawyer, what would you class those to be and how easy was it for you to obtain them? So as you've already said, yes, there were plenty of transferable skills. And I think that's the thing that's great to have in your back pocket is that if you know how to read legislation or where to look for the legislation, then that's usually the hardest bit out the way. Then in terms of the traits that I think would specifically apply to officers within the army legal services, you know, we tend to be ambitious and confident individuals and ones who are enthusiastic. So I think all of those lead to somebody having a positive mindset. And if you even feel like, I don't know, you're being challenged, we tend to thrive in those sorts of environments. It's also, I think it's useful to be confident in the fact that you are part of a team that you're not the only one and that you can always go to somebody either on an email at the end of the phone or if you're within a team you know across the desk from you and ask them for their advice we're never alone in that sense in terms of how easy it was for me it felt relatively easy i i was lucky in that when i was in chambers i was on my feet regularly in court whether it be in the civil courts or the crown court. And so doing those sorts of things, briefing commanders, being on my feet, that was fine for me. And 
in terms of finding my way around the legislation, that was fine as well. I think whenever you go into a new posting within the ALS, you have that period to bed in and to do a sort of read around the topics that you're going to be advising on. And that in itself just uh, allows you that moment to, I suppose, familiarise yourself with what you're about to do. And then you can just get stuck in and get on with it. You mentioned right back at the beginning about the different periods of training that you had to undertake when you first joined. And I wondered if for people who are maybe interested in, in thinking about potentially moving from private practice to the Army Legal Services, what are the timescales like in terms of training and what's the application process like? So in terms of timescales, let's start right from the beginning. So somebody submits an expression of interest and they submit a CV and covering letter. I think at the moment we are having slight delays because of the impact that the pandemic is having on how training is being run and how the selection process runs. But on the whole, I think seven months is a good time period to think about. So from submitting that CV to then being taken on to your first week of training. In terms of training once you're actually in the role, so it starts off with, at the moment, a week before Sandhurst. Sandhurst is then eight weeks long. And then there is usually a little bit of time for some leave, just so you can have a break. And then we go back into another six weeks of training. That's the phase two training, so familiarisation with the army. There's also an introductory week on operational law. And then we like to get our new officers away on a week of adventurous training. And usually that's a week of skiing. Uh, And then after that, they go on and do their combat arm attachments for three months. So our, our normal intake starts in September and they will finish their combat arm attachments in June. And then they'll be looking at their first posting in July. So it's just shy of of a normal academic year in terms of the training process. Yes, yeah. Um, And that's the normal year. We are aiming to have three intakes this year. So one in September, one in January and one in May. And then they will run to the same timescales as well. And just in terms of your working pattern, so is it a sort of, you know, standard... 20 odd days of annual leave a year or do you work in in chunks on certain projects and then take extended periods of leave um no we we have 30 days leave it it really depends what units you're with because some postings are naturally busier than others when you deploy on operational tours you are away for six months you might have two weeks in that time where you come back for a bit of r&r but that could fall at any point in in that tour Uh, And then after the tour, you do get some post-operational tour leave. We are encouraged to take leave. So, you know, at the moment, being predominantly desk-based, I would be encouraged to take leave when I can around balancing the, the intakes because I'm responsible for the new officers coming in and joining the ALS. And certainly when I was in service complaints, I was always encouraged to take leave. You are asked why you haven't taken leave if you get to the end of the the tax year and for some reason there you know are still 20 days left for you to take and certainly both I and my colleagues have been encouraged by our chain of command to 
ensure that we do use up our leave allowance. So we're always supported in that respect. So in that respect, it sounds as though there is a culture that exists that's aware and attuned to the need for leave, the need to switch off and the need to have work-life balance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. At the moment, there's a great push to increase awareness of mindfulness. And we also have mental resilience training, which is really helpful both you know, for us personally to recognise traits within ourselves, but also um, to realise that when you're in charge of team members or subordinates, that you can identify traits in other people and you can just assist because, you know, we a workforce is only as strong as its weakest member, I, I personally think. And we should always be encouraged to have a, a good, healthy work-life balance I I certainly am a proponent of that, having come from, you know, a couple of years where I did not have a healthy work-life balance. I'm now a huge advocate for saying, actually, that time away from the desk is so important. There are bigger things in life than work. And what, Sarah, would you say are your future career aspirations in terms of where you sort of see yourself five, 10, 15 years from now? Uh, that's a good question. I've um, I've always been ambitious and I've always had an idea of where I want to go. And I've always had several routes in my mind. So, you know, if Avenue A doesn't work, then I'll just switch to Avenue B. So I, I've always been interested in becoming a coroner. So I've got that in the back of my mind. ALS officers can have part-time judicial posts at the same time as, you know, their legal officer job. Obviously, that would be if I can balance that with work, <laughs> um, as in my ALS work. I, I would certainly like to rise up the ranks, but at the moment, I am really keen to just have as varied a career as possible. I love to travel. I love to see the world. I really want to look back on my life and my career with pride and you know I'd love to tell my children that these are the things that mummy did when you know when you were younger and I want them to be really enthralled by those things so at the moment my biggest aims are to deploy an operational tour I there are some really interesting postings within the army legal services that I just wouldn't be able to do in private practice and so I I would like to aim for one of those and yeah at, at the moment that's that's all I'm interested in is just having a, a really interesting fulfilling career. It's very exciting though that those opportunities you know that they're they're out there and they will come along in time and you've got all of that to look forward to you know the fact that you know every two years is your your whole career and and what you do at work is going to be switched up entirely is is it must be very motivating yeah it really is I know some people might be daunted by the fact that you know you're in the army you could naturally be separated from your family or whether that be you being sent on tour or you being you know, having a base in the southwest of England and then being told that you're being posted to York. I am very lucky that I have a young family and we're very flexible so we can move around together at the moment. Um, And my husband supports me in or has supported me in joining the forces. So he knows that I am really keen to get around and travel. So I'm very lucky in that respect. 
but the army legal services is always really good at supporting its officers in being able to have that strong family life so you know even if there are postings that take you away from your family there will also be postings that allow you to spend plenty of time together so over the length of a someone's career it will be a good balance between working very hard but also having that downtime and two final questions this evening then before i let you go sarah <laughs> firstly it is what would you say to anyone thinking about a career as a military barrister and secondly a question that i like to ask every guest i have on this podcast is do you love your job <laughs> um Okay, so two really easy questions to answer. What would I say to someone considering it? I would say go for it. Like, hands down, oh my word, it's the best thing I've done with my life, genuinely. I could wax lyrical about how wonderful the Army Legal Services is. I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, either sucking up to either the ALS or the Army, but it's just, it's phenomenal. I've, I get paid to play hockey, which I love. I'm in the south of England, which is great. I have time to the week at the weekends to myself. I'm always doing varied, interesting jobs. And if I want to make something happen, whether that be I would like to take some officers sailing in the Solent, or I really want to go on an operational tour, or there's the Keeble Advanced Advocacy course that I want to take part in, then I can do the work and apply to make that happen and I'll be supported in it. And thankfully, at the moment, I'm lucky enough that there's funding around to support both myself and other fellow officers in pursuing those sorts of things. Do I love my job? If it hasn't come across enough already, yes, I love my job. I and I love the possibilities that are out there ahead of me over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Sarah, thanks so much. It has been so interesting to talk with you. And I hope that some people listening to this who have maybe been thinking about applying will be pushed that little bit. They'll have got that encouragement that they need to put in an application and then in seven, eight months time they'll be with you in the army legal services yes i i really hope so it's been it's been great fun thank you thanks for listening to the raising the bar podcast please subscribe rate and review and for more information check us out on twitter at raising the bar gi <laughs>